What I didn't do when I was an AD, I was working with all these A-list directors and I would just kind of show up and see what they came up with. But I didn't do the work before I saw what they came up with to try to solve the problems beforehand. So that like, you know, I was thinking, God, if I'm ET, I knew like, okay, you know, tomorrow we're going to have this scene where, you know, ET is discovered in the closet and Gertie and all of them, they see that, you know, and, or that, you know, or Elliot discovers so-and-so it's like, I didn't like say, how would I film that? How would I stage it? How would I film it? How would I tell the story? And it's like, it's like, you gotta be willing to, to face the blank page. That's what we do, right? It's terrifying. And if you're not willing to, to deal with bad choices that you're gonna come up with inevitably to start out. You can't find your way to the good choices. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about The Director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video. What's up, folks? Welcome to episode... 31 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman, and I am your host, Pete Chapman. Uh, We are getting back in the swing of things over here. Season two is continuing after that uh, May to January hiatus of of, uh, 2021 going into 2022, but we back, baby. And uh, I'm super excited to be back. As you know, last week um, or a couple weeks back, uh, we did a book promo episode and my book Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook from Michael Weezy Productions is now out. It continues to be the number one uh, video release, uh, video reference uh, release on Amazon. And it's ranking up there in directing and producing as well. Don't know how the categories get decided, but I'm happy to be there, happy that folks are supporting uh, and really appreciate it. Been getting a lot of good feedback on the book. And uh, I think what we'll do is have some giveaways, but we'll get back to figuring that out uh, as uh, these episodes go on. I'll try and engage y'all on social for free giveaways. Um, But uh, in news around here, um, this week, I have started back uh, in a director's chair, but also in the co-executive producer chair and in the producing director chair um, for Reasonable Doubt, which is produced by Kerry Washington's uh, Simpson Street uh, Productions and Larry Wilmore's Wilmore Films. The showrunner is Ramla Muhammad, who was, if I'm not mistaken, Ramla was episode 18 of the podcast, so check it out. I uh, learned more about her, and it's dope to have it come full circle. Now be collaborating, but I uh, hope you'll check both of the check that show out. It'll be coming out this fall, I believe, on Hulu, um, and I'll be directing episode 102 and 110, which we are prepping for now. But this week, my friends, we have quite frankly uh, one of the 
most active, legendary, awesome television directors working, uh, Dan Adius. He has a book out called Boom, Directing Great Television Inside TV's New Golden Age. And uh, you'll see on the cover, for those of you watching this on YouTube, uh, images of Claire Danes from Homeland, uh, uh, folks from The Wire and The Sopranos. Those are but a few of the shows that Dan has directed. Um, Dan was an English undergrad at UC Berkeley, got his MFA in film production at UCLA and traveled uh, quite a journey from acting to ADing to directing both films and television. Um, and this was an opportunity. Uh, I hope you all enjoy the, the show. For me, I was just really trying to soak up game and learn as much as I could. Uh, and Dan was very good in that regard and sharing gems. Uh, he says the book is not a it's not a, a how to, uh, although we we chatted offline and I I kind of argued that I think that it, it kind of is. It's about principles. There are principles that can be applied in our career, uh, which are not necessarily, a you know, do this, do that, do that, do that. And you get, you know, some uh, result at the end. But the principles of, of directing and being creative and trusting your gut and your instinct and mastering your craft. If you put all those principles together that we talk about in this interview, uh, I feel pretty confident that you'll become a better director than you were before. Uh, and if not, you know, hopefully a successful director uh, working professionally. So pick up directing great television inside TV's new golden age from Dan Adius. And in the meantime, I'll see you on the other side. Let's shoot with Pete Chapman, episode 31, kicking off right now. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. In the, in the earlier episodes, I used to begin with this question, and then I kind of fell off track um, because that's what happens sometimes. But what makes a good story, Dan? Whoa, very good question. Uh, well, I'm just going to speak from the top of my head here. Uh, something that engages us, something that activates our imagination. And what makes a good story, I think, is an individual question. I kind of really believe in that. It's a funny thing to say, given that, you know, we're in a business that we're trying to appeal to as many people as we can. But my view of story is that we need, we're, we're narrative beings. We need story to know who we are or to think we know who we are. You know, we define ourselves through the stories we tell ourselves about who we are, which usually comes from you know, early experience that we don't choose it, but, you know, we fit into reality in a certain way and our parents are a certain way. And we say, okay, I'm this one in relation to that one. And my story, you know, and we play roles based on the stories we tell ourselves about who we are. And we're generally, well, I think we almost never are choosing that story. So often we're saddled with ones that really are not good stories, make us unhappy, make us, you know, mm -hmm. define us as uh, deficient or in some way, you know, uh, powerless. You know, some people are fortunate that they have other kinds of stories that they, you know, are go-getters and they're always going to succeed and that gives you confidence. But, you know, we we are narrative creatures and we're we hang on to our stories because uh, they give us they give us security that at least we know who we are, that it's more frightening to have no story. Then you don't even know if you exist. So I think that's one of the reasons people cling to stories that, you know, are kind of unhealthy and kind of 
bring about a lot of personal suffering. But when we go to stories, when we when when we go to movies, when we pick up a novel, when we you know are, are watching a movie, it's it's I think we want to we want to connect to that story in a way that's going to somehow illuminate for us what might be a better story for us or what might be a better ending or what might be something we want to see or how might we understand ourselves a little differently. So it's just kind of a long-winded way of, of answering your question, but I think each of us connects to story in our own way. And, and each, each story has its own detail that's going to grab you and it has its own detail that's going to grab me. Uh, you know, so I'm... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very intrigued. I did a lot of work early on with um, a guy named Robert Bly, who was a poet who wrote a book that kind of got a lot of attention called Iron John. And he and his uh, uh, presenting partner, a guy named Michael Mead, who's still around doing brilliant work up in Seattle, uh, they would tell fairy tales and myths because fairy tales are kind of like myths in a way in that they've been handed down generation after generation. So they have a kind of deeper resonance with our psyche. There's something deep within us that is being enacted in these, these kind of, in a way they're teaching stories. They're giving examples of a certain kind of hero's journey kind of, you know, and, uh, right. and what he would do is he'd tell stories that would, uh, he'd ask people listening to them to just, don't think about it so much as see what detail strikes you. And that's kind of, well, you know, I was really struck by that moment in the story where, you know, I don't know, Luke Skywalker did this to so-and-so, you know, and you don't have to just, you don't, it's just your own curiosity has brought you there. And if you really work that, you can start to examine how that applies to your life. It's something you're struggling with. It's something you're trying to work out and it can be an opening and stories offer a treasure chest. You know, it's like mm. another word, word for stories. It used to be the storehouse. It's a storehouse of wisdom and kind of ways to, you know, to think about things. So, uh, God, I don't know how I got off on that's this. That's interesting. So that's the question. But yeah, I think so. So then in terms of what makes a good story is what appeals to you in a way that's relevant to your life. Right. I didn't know that was the etymology for a story. That's I'm sure it's one of them, and I'm sure it's not the only one. But I think that's that's that is its etymology. That's interesting, and it, yeah. it's funny too because like we're like you know we have a newborn, and now I'm I'm reading all the stories, and yeah. sometimes yeah. I I get halfway through one, and I'm like I don't know if I'm, I don't want to read this one. This one has a yeah. I don't know if it if it paints the world the way that I'd like you to envision who you could be in the world, right. you know, because and some of these uh, I was reading Aesop's fables last night and some of them are, uh, you know, I don't know, some of the rules applied or maybe not. the They're, they're not that way anymore. So it's, it's really interesting to uh, see how we need that that packaged unit to understand ourselves. Well, also, know? if we can just take this little side road a little further, because I really, really intrigues me. It's like when you, you know when you talk about your newborn. You know, I'm I'm very uh, fascinated by fairy tales, kind of as a result of having worked with Robert Bly and others. Uh, and I when I tell fairy tales, or I used to do it a lot more, go to schools and talk to you know kindergartners or first and second graders. And the beauty of fairy tales is that, and, and when you tell the ones that kind of, I think, carry their own wisdom because they've been handed down after generation after generation, not 
someone just writes a fairy tale and says, okay, tell this, because that's just, that could be someone's own hangups and neuroses getting translated and giving the kind of messages you're saying you don't really want to convey. Right. When you think of fairy tales, it's really interesting. Like, like, I don't know, like Jack and the Beanstalk. It's like, okay, a giant, you know, it's like fairy tales often provide hope for little ones who, you know, do perceive the world as if there are giants around, you know, <laughs> and it's right. kind of intimidating, but fairy tales can tell a story that give hope to that little one that, you know, if I do, if I have ingenuity or if I, you know, get an inner ally, like a magic so-and-so and so, I can, I can survive. I can, you know, so this, the narrative then becomes for the little one, like there's hope. It's not just like, right. I'm here in this world of just massive figures that have that, that render me powerless. Right. Do you do you remember the first time that, and this might be a two-part question, the first story that impacted you mm-hmm. and the first time that you said, you know, maybe, maybe my life's journey will be in telling stories? That's a great question. Uh I don't think I have something I can recall like in my early life or teenage years or anything that made me feel that way. But I do know that when I, uh, well, I always, I always, uh, I was a literature major as an undergraduate in college. So I loved, by that time I loved reading stories, but I also was a big movie fan and television fan. I mean, I, I grew up with, you know, I don't know, a lot of TV shows that I was addicted to and, and, and movies became, you know, my there's something about that one thing I lament about the COVID and all that is just how difficult it is to get into that collective room Mm -hmm. darkened room with other people getting this immersed totally immersive experience but um you know I guess you know in my you know in my 20s and stuff when I was watching a lot of that great independent cinema of the you know the 70s and everything there are many many movies there that really touched me in a deep way and 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 moved me in ways that made me feel like I'd, I'd like to participate in that. I'd like to be able to engage with a story that I could affect, but also share with someone else and perhaps touch them in, in intimate, deep ways the way I was touched. Right. Would you say it was, um, was it more of those kind of indie films that were coming out of, you know, after Easy Rider, as opposed to like the, uh, well, blockbusters didn't come until the mid seventies, I guess, with Jaws, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, but like, what what kind of films were were kind of piquing your interest in, in terms well, of tone? I mean, one that really moved one of my favorite films was one that was a, a little before my time, but I watched it in the sixties, and that was Francois Truffaut's Four Hundred Blows. Yeah, uh, which so you know, and, and for those of your listeners and viewers who don't know the film. It's an autobiographical film. It's the first film Francois Truffaut made. He was a film critic for Cahiers du Cinéma, you probably know. And he he decided to make one. He was a great film critic, and he decided to make one of his own films. And he he made it autobiographical about his own childhood. And it was about this boy played by Antoine uh, by Jean Pierre Leo. He played the character was Antoine Toinel. And he, Truffaut wound up making I think four films with the same actor as he got older and older, and he became like his. Mm-hmm character but the boy was so unhappy and he was in such a I mean he had a lot of inherent joy and he mischievousness and and life in him but he lived in a with parents that just you know a stepfather and a kind of self-absorbed mother and 
and very little money and he was just never you know appreciated and always just irritated the hell out of everybody and was put in reform school and just looked like he had no prospects certainly no support from anything in his environment and it touched me so much the way Truffaut just kind of got us to identify with this misunderstood and magical young boy who kept trying and every time he tried to do something it just it just turned to shit you know it's like right. misperceived <laughs> by people he'd say he'd be scolded for it he'd have this he he fell in love with Balzac and he he just you know as a little boy as like a nine or ten or eleven however old he was he he uh, plagiarizes you know Balzac he's supposed to do a writing assignment and he gets so involved with this thing he just writes it as if it's his own and he turns it in and he's punished oh you didn't even do the assignment and you know you're going you know Anyway, it ended with such a lyrical shot where the boy is put in a reform school and on the coast, he's away from his parents. And he, the last shot is just beautiful. This was made in, I think, 1959. And he, right. he, he runs away from the school. He's so clever. He figures out a way to leave a soccer game and just keep running. And uh, he runs and runs. And Truffaut does this unbelievably long tracking shot. First, I guess, on the truck as he's running through the city and then along right. the beach. And this probably had an 500 foot dolly track running all the way across the beach and he gets to the shore and he runs to the shore and at earlier you had learned that he always wanted to see the ocean and he gets to the ocean and he just turns around and there's nowhere to go and the last frame is a freeze last shot is a freeze frame of his face against the ocean and you see this troubled face this little boy he had nowhere to go he's ran to what he wanted where his heart took him but it, it wasn't ready for him. He wasn't ready. For, there was nothing to do. He was just there. And, and, you know, it was so poignant and touching. But what you know, watching the film, is he grew up to be Francois Truffaut. Right. He grew up to be an artist. Right. So that film really, really touched me. And the way, the way it can speak to, you know, I had my own and continue, I guess, life is a constant revealing of who you are and what your deepest self really is. And, you know, but it just touched on you know, pain in my own life and gave me, you know, this kind of lyrical, this connection to the lyrical and hope for, you know, a better story. So that was, right. that was one that really moved me. And there's, you know, there's something interesting too. Uh, and I'm thinking about your book and making this statement, like this idea of having been a critic and being critical about the art form probably informs your choices and the and the amount of introspection you apply to your own work right you know because you are you know what it's like on the other side to judge it and what's not in it and what's uh, missing yeah. you know and yeah. if you have that artistic ability to then also uh accomplish it with the tools of the camera and and the human resources of it you can probably do something really dynamic you know that's um, a great that's a great point pete and i think I wonder what you'd think if you agree with this too. I think it can also be an impediment because, mm. you know, to make, it's so interesting what we do, you know, it's like you, I mean, I write in my book, uh, you know, how it's like, you have to be, you have to, you have to do several things. You have to be, you know, in touch with your creative, you know, resources and what's coming through you and what you want to see. You also, when we're storytelling, have to be part audience yourself because you have to monitor, well, 
what what information have I given the audience to understand what I'm about to say? Have I given right. them the proper context or frame of reference for them to understand? Because I, or we as directors know far more about the story than our audience does. And we can get in trouble if we're not you know, aware. Wait, wait, they don't know what I know already. So how can I acquaint them with that before I tell them right. this other thing to help them understand it? That's one thing. Um, but also, you know, we have to uh, be able to access our own kind of, I don't know, dreams, our own fan, our own what's coming through us in an unconscious, unbidden way that's mm -hmm. just coming from our deeper resources and not get in the way of it, not evaluate it too quickly so that it has a chance to emerge. So that if you have a background as a critic, that can be an impediment because you think, oh, well, somebody already did that, or I don't know, is this good or not? And you know, I found in my, you know, I detail this in my book a little bit, one of the crucial moments for me in, in my development as a director was to uh, realize that the only resource I really have, the only thing, you know, the only resource I really have to know how, whether to choose a certain option or another is how I feel about it. You know, and that, you know, like in one chapter I have on camera, this was really a, 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 an important moment for me is, you know, we come into directing and especially if we have an education and have seen a lot of films and, oh my God, dude, that shot was so great. And, that, and what do I have to say? And can I do a good shot or not? And you start, get, you can get hung up on thinking, is this cinematic? Is this impressive? Is this, you know, and that really just gets in the way. I mean, an education is really significant. It's important. We can learn, we can expand if we take in what we've seen as kind of, I'm going to file that away because that produced a certain effect I want at another time or something like, all that's, you know, deep, very rich. But, you know, the thing you can't learn from anybody else is how you see, you know, how you, how an image or composition strikes you, what your feeling is about it. And right. to me, the most important question, you know, for me in directing is, how does this make me feel? You know, I apply that in kind of almost every situation. It's like when I'm watching a rehearsal and I'm, I said, how do, how do I feel about what I'm seeing? How do I, or how do I feel about this camera angle the DP is suggesting? Or how do I feel about this composition I'm considering when I'm doing my prep? Not what's the most cinematic thing, but right. how do I feel about it? You know, because it's only by registering what we feel inside that we can, that's our only barometer for how the story is going to land. And it has, so it has to interest us before we can tell the story and just hope that others, you know, connect right. the same way. That's such a, a true thing, you know, and, and in my own process in, in the last year, I've been stepping away from wearing so many hats at one time. Yeah. And like, for instance, I would kind of be looking in the past at whether or not we're being kind of word perfect or not while watching the scene. And now I leave that to the script supervisor and I just watch it. I don't I'm not there to know if the words are right or wrong. I'm just there to watch if it feels like there are moments in here that are true and honest and someone else will keep me honest on whether or not that word was right or, you know, we stepped on something. Um, and it's it's exactly what you're saying. You you when when your interest wanes, there's a reason, and there's where the adjustment needs to go. Pete, you just went right to the heart. I mean, that just to me that just goes right in. That's the question I'm always asking: Is it true and honest? You right. know, 
it's like, cause that's all, that's all I'm really interested in. Finally, you know, I, it's taken me many years to kind of get there. Hmm. Uh, to, yeah. I and mean, I've always had that as an interest, but a lot of other stuff comes in like, but is it impressive? Is it this, is it, you know, it's like, to me, what I'm, to me, what I love about what we get to do is it's an opportunity to try to penetrate through the layers of confusion and veils of convention and everything else to get to something true about being a human being and true and deep about what's right. really happening in a certain exchange. So that if I'm watching something, uh, you know, I want to, I want to have a, I want to have something cracked open inside of me. I want my heart to open. Yeah. I want to, to see anew instead of just seeing the way, we, oh yeah, it's the same old this or it's the same old that. Oh yeah, that's the same old love story. Or that's the same old action scene or that's the same old, you know, everything is unique. If it's real, it's right. one of a kind. It's right. specific, it's particular. And I'm reminded of uh, a story I tell in my book too, but you know, I started, once I found my way to knowing I wanted to uh, be in this business of storytelling, which was a bit circuitous. Um, my first entree into it was for about three years, I studied to be an actor. And uh, I was looking for many of the same things. I wanted to kind of crack open to a deeper experience of myself, a deeper experience of life to get to something just authentic, you know, and so that you always try for that. And that's what we do as directors, isn't it? I mean, when we're dealing with actors, we're trying to help them get to a place of authenticity or something that right. feels to us and our audience. Uh, and I took, and the, the, you know, my, my most famous acting teacher was a woman named Stella Adler, who, you know, broke with, who, whose most famous pupil was Marlon Brando. And uh, she, so I took some, she'd come out to LA in the summers and I was studying with another really good teacher named Jeff Corey at the time, but uh, Stella would teach these summer classes. And I remember, how, how she had broken with the group theater in the 1930s because of their emphasis on naturalistic acting. You know, it's like, it's, you know, you got a lot of cliches of people just being kind of just real. And I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to be real, man. You know, I'm just not that bullshit, elocution, whatever, you know? And, right, right, right. And she just said, yeah, that's not so, yeah, yeah, that's, it's fine to be natural, but you got to be deep and real and tell us something, you know, and right. so she would stand up in front of the class and she would just, uh, she'd sit there and she'd get up and she'd pretend she's smoking a cigarette. She just kind of slouched She just said, uh, 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 is this very interesting? <laughs> you know, it's, it's real. Isn't it real? You know, right. <laughs> she said, right. Right. I'm not that I said, natural is fine. It's good to be natural, but that's, you know, too many actors just rely on that instead of going deeper into the material and finding something rich so that she'd right. say, she'd have assignments of saying like, go out into life and just sit on a bench and watch life and watch interactions and, you know, come up with, you know, as you watch a, I don't know, a mother with a four-year-old walking along and the four-year-old acting up and the mother doing something or the mother, you know, throwing breadcrumbs into the pond with that person. What's really going on? What's happening? What? And she'd encourage actors to really dig deep to kind of give their characters deep rich inner lives you know that right. make, make them up dealing with something she put it this way she said give them big concerns that's not to say we all go through I, I mean I think what I like about that is you, you know we all look at I don't know I look around and you know sometimes I just write off oh yeah that person's just that or that person it's like we're all unique souls and we all have complexity and as and she encouraged anybody to, who's playing any part 
to, you know, make, give them, what are their larger concerns? What right. do they want in a, in a significant way in their life? Even if it doesn't come out obviously in the part, if you don't do that, the characters aren't going to be very interesting. So I'm not right. sure what, what question of yours I'm really answering, but here I am. <laughs> all of them, all of them know that this is, this is what people should be listening to. Um, so let, so you were, you majored in literature in college. Um, you found your way into acting, I guess, as an entree into the, the, the business. How, just let's kind of talk about how you got from, uh, from there to, uh, assistant directing, because that was kind of yeah. the next move, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the moves were, I was about three years wanted to act, and I did a lot of studying, and I got where was in some plays. I actually got into SAG, but I wasn't, I wasn't really ready to go out professionally. And acting was challenging for me because, again, it's that critic's head. It's like, I really, I understood scenes pretty well. I, I have a good uh, ability, I feel, to really get to the depth of what something's about, especially through an, you know, an education in literature and all that. And so I have a pretty good understanding and feel for when something's getting you know, deeper and real and interesting to me. Uh, but I had a real hard time getting out of my own way. It was really hard for me when I was evaluated personally. I had a big honking critic right over my shoulder, just whispering, my, you know, like, wow, you're full of shit. That's fake. That's right. You know, and, like like mid mid sentence. I would depart the inner life just because I'd suddenly be judging myself, or I, you know, right. and I had to, and I was good when, and this is all my own judgments because I never really got out there. I got a lot of nice response from my workshops and all that, but I I, I was suffering so much. Mm. It, it, the self punishment I was kind of, <laughs> you know, if I if I was fine when my inner life happened to be perfectly in sync with what the character had to be, but that's rare. Usually you have to kind of, you know. But when when I when I tried to you know enter another's world, I would really get in my own way. And it and it so happened that as I was still pursuing acting, I enrolled in a in a funnily enough critical studies program at UCLA for film because I was good at you know writing papers about English and I could write papers about film but I really just wanted to study the acting over at UC, in the film at the uh, dramatic you know the acting program and I was in a few plays which was really fun um, but as part of this critical studies program they wanted students to make a film um, mm. and they said you know if you're going to write about film you should know something about it so I made this little film and it was the epiphany for me because I saw, mm. wow, I can really get out of my own way when I'm, when I'm not the one that everybody's just looking at and saying, what's your inner life right now? You know? And right. I was able to really, really blossom and find, it was thrilling for me. And I found how much I loved working with actors who didn't have all those, you know, had a, had a, maybe a, a, a more open channel in those circumstances to their deeper resources. So, and that, and that, you know, it's kind of funny as I think of it as a kind of sports metaphor. I sometimes think about how, you know, how sometimes the best coaches either like in basketball mm. are the players who weren't that great because they had to work so hard to make right. it, you know, right. they had to learn so much about the ins and the outs and how to maybe take advantage of minimal talent, but to you know, maximize it. That when they, you know, they have a bigger picture, and that and when they do right. really stars, they're they're able to facilitate. Like Magic Johnson was a terrible coach because right. everything had come so easy to him. He'd get it. Right. Why didn't you throw to that guy behind you? Well, I didn't see him. Why didn't you? And because Magic knew the guy was behind. Right. Him. So, right. 
So that's I, a great analogy. Yeah. You know, so with acting for me, it's like, I felt like I, I developed some really good skills to try to help myself that when I'm dealing with actors who are real actors, I feel I have a lot of ways to help them maybe kind of reach a particular state. So I knew, so I made that transition to, I want to direct. And I transferred over to an MFA program, which I ultimately, seven years later, completed at UCLA. But, but, <laughs> what, but what, uh, in what between, took yeah, in between, you know, you asked about how I became an AD. So in between, so I got an MFA program and I'm going through it, but I didn't have a thesis film I wanted to make. And I'd see a lot of big fish in the small pond. I'm sure you saw that too. It's like, you know, people right. who are career film students who don't make the move, but they're the stars within the department. I said, you know, I don't want to be that. Uh, I want right. to go out. So if I don't have a thesis film, what can I do? And I thought, well, maybe I'll, and I heard assistant director. I thought, well, maybe that is your assistant directing, which we both know right. is not what you do. But right. I got, but I got accepted into the uh, DGA's assistant director's training program. And I, and I worked for two years as a trainee AD and I worked on some really cool things. I worked on Airplane, the movie Airplane, with the trainee. Hilarious. <laughs> and uh, some other good things. And then I then I became a second AD for two more years. And then I had some great chances. Then I worked on ET, the extraterrestrial, as a second AD. Yeah. I worked for Coppola on a movie called One from the Heart that very few people saw. I worked for Vim Vendors on Hammett. Mm. Uh, wow. I even worked for Sam Fuller on, a, on one of his last movies. Uh, called White Dog. And uh, so I worked on like a dozen, between trainee and second, I worked on like a dozen features. And uh, it was great because I got to be around really good directors. And, and uh, but when I got my days in that I could move up to first, I realized I, I, this is not my job. I want to be a director. Right. So that's when I went back to film school. That's the, you know, not second. That's, the, that's okay. when I came back and, and did my, had a film finally to make, made it. And that, won some film festivals and got me started. I love it. it. It's it's great to hear too, like there was kind of a consistent like metronome for you, you know what I mean? Or due north as far as like, I wanna do this thing. I don't yet know how to accomplish it, but I'm always gonna, when, when the epiphanies come, I have no problem pivoting, transitioning back to the road that's gonna get me to where I wanna go. This is Seat Man. You're listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook is Pete Chapman's book from Michael Weezy Productions. What started in 1993 has been a marathon of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school, to running a production company, to directing television and commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him his start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration, this book is for any person targeting a successful career in the creative arts. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook from Michael Weezy Productions. What, what would be the top three things you took away from your ADing experience that helped yeah, you as a director? Question. Good question. Um, well, first of all, 
uh, you know, I got to see a wide variety of directors, very talented directors working and approaching their work. And, and I, I grew to appreciate that they're all different, mm -hmm. that, you know, the best ones trust their instincts, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and really could go in to what was, uh, you know, what was the answer? They looked for the answer inside themselves, the best ones, the ones that floundered were the ones that were, because I also was an, a trainee on some TV shows too. So, you know, I saw a pretty wide variety. Um, but I'll tell you something interesting. Another thing I took away from it was something I didn't do, which, mm -hmm. and, and so now when I have uh, young people shadowing me, young directors shadowing me, and I've had a lot over the years, and I've actually, about nine years ago, formed a little mentoring group that uh, isn't really still active, but I, I had about three or four people who had shadowed me, who I had many more than that shadow me, but a few that really struck me as, as people I liked that were talented, that had stuck around, that were like in their late twenties or right. even 30, that they showed, showed they had persistence, they were serious. And I, I, I started a little mentoring group with them uh, to kind of bridge, help bridge the gap from film school to directing, because as you know, it's like, it's, it's a lot different when you just show up, you, you, there's a lot of things you're not prepared for at film school. And so right. I help them with that. But one of the things that my experience ADing, something I didn't do made me learn what I should have done and what I now tell anybody shadowing me. And I, I offer it to you, if you have people shadowing you to offer it to them, which is what I didn't do when I was an AD I was working with all these A-list directors and I would just kind of show up and see what they came up with. But I didn't do the work before I saw what they came up with to try to solve the problems beforehand. So that like, you know, I was thinking, God, if on ET, I knew like, okay, you know, tomorrow we're gonna have the scene where, you know, E.T. is discovered in the closet and Gertie and all of them, they see that, you know, and or that, you know, or Elliot discovers so-and-so. It's like, I didn't like say, how would I film that? How would right. I stage it? How would I film it? How would I tell the story? And it's like, it's like, you got to be willing to, to face the blank page. That's what we do, yes. right? It's terrifying. You know, it's like, you know, and, and if you're not willing to to deal with bad choices that you're gonna come up with inevitably to start out. Okay, I don't know, this is, you know, it's like writers you often hear say, okay, here's the terrible idea. Here's the terrible version of how to solve this problem. They'll come up with a bad idea or they're just right. giving themselves cover to say, I know I haven't thought about it, it's probably bad. You're probably not gonna like it, but how about this? You know, right. unless you're able to do that, you can't find your way to the good choices, right? You gotta make a start. So, right. so you know, and I learned this when I started directing, it's like, okay, you know, here's tomorrow we're going to do this. And what am I going to do? It's like, well, wait, if so-and-so enters the room, then this other person's already over, wait, but that's not going to work because I got to have this exchange over right. by the water fountain. Okay, well, how do I do that? How can I have them start the water? And then, okay, they come in, but then another character joins. And if I'm all the way over there, I don't have one camera that's even going to see the other entrance. So wait, how do I put the camera that will maybe see the door so I don't have to cut to the door? I can at least right. feel someone coming in. You know, you start figuring out ways to kind of consolidate and condense yep. your shots and tell the story. And then what's the key moment in the scene? What? Wait, where do I right. want the camera when so-and-so learns that uh, so-and-so's betraying him? You know, it's like, well, I want to be... I want to be straight on him at that point. I want to, so 
do I have to cut to that or can I have a shot that's already ready for that? You know, right. so you start to think all that stuff and you start to become aware of what the challenges are. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. hey, you read a scene. Oh yeah, that's the scene. Well, some, t- some t- scenes, as you well know, or, you know, are deceptively really complicated wow. because it's like, wait, I can't possibly tell this in less than 17 shots and I only have an hour and a half to right. do scene. So that's not going to work. So, right. you, have to, you know, really try. And then you say, and, and so then you come up with a plan. And so what I really wish I had done, it's like if I had done that work and then I could have come on the show and see, so how did Spielberg do it? Right. I would have had meaning. Right. It would have had meaning for me because I would have seen, right. oh, he solved it that way. Or, right. oh, that problem I was obsessing on isn't even a problem. He didn't even, right. you know, whatever. So that's where learning can happen. And so I ask, I ask uh, young people shadowing me now, uh, I said, you know, do your own plan. And, right. and, you know, see, and then what I come up with, you know, and you can even share it with me. And you know what, if it's better than what I came up with, I'll steal it from you happily. Right. Or, or, you can, you know, right. or you can learn something about, you know, so that was another huge thing I learned by omission when I was in AD. And then another thing I learned, uh, well, the big thing, of course, was really getting acquainted, A, with how collaborative the whole process was. Right. How so many people have to come together, each having their role to play and their part to contribute. Uh, and what everybody does, you know, and what set demeanor is and, right. you know, and what leadership is, you know, what kind right. of leadership is effective and what kind is destructive. You know, right. an AD comes in and just runs around. I mean, not an AD, if a, if a director comes in is just yelling what that does to a crew. Or if a right. director comes in and doesn't take command, what that does right. to the crew, you know? And then you learn about things like, well, what are the trade-offs? If you spend, you know, uh, four hours in the first, you know, the start of the day on a one-page scene with, with seven pages to shoot that day, what does that right. do to the back end of the schedule? You're not gonna get more time. So you're gonna be right. rushing something that might be more important. You know, so all of that I learned. And then finally, I'll just say, tying it into a point we were discussing earlier, I learned that I had to give up being an AD when I was a director. It's like, it's a tremendous, it's a tremendous assistance Mm -hmm. to know all those things. Like I know there are trade-offs, you know, I know I've got to prioritize. I know I've got to do all those things, but I also have to dream. I also have to put aside the practical considerations. An AD will read a script and will say, Okay, yada, yada, yada. Oh, okay, big scene there, probably crane. Uh, (laughs) Wow, how many extras? We're only budgeted for 40 extras for the whole show, and that's like, my God, there's probably going to be 50 of them in just that scene. What what are we going to do for the other ones? Okay, you start to think all the limitations, and that's not what we're hired for. Now, we have to ultimately take that into account, but not Mm -hmm. at the get-go. At the get-go, I want to be able to just dream the show. I want to right. think as big as I want to think. And that that was a big adjustment to really right. say, oh, I can't ask for a crane. There's not a crane in the budget. Right. Oh my God. Uh, you know, now drones are a lot cheaper. But you know, suppose, suppose right. you find some huge Apollo, you know, some huge crane to do a great, amazing shot. You think, oh, I can't do that. That's oh my God. That's the, the production manager will oh they'll have a heart attack if I say I want that because I also want it in this other scene. Two crane, oh, I can't do that. You know, you can't right. think that way. You gotta think. You got to dream the show as big as you want it to be, 
And then you can start to see, okay, now what can we do? You can ask the things. You say, okay, now what's the most important thing for me? And what might be another way I can do the same thing? You know, so those are, so the AD experience was uh, was pretty amazing that way. Yeah, those are gems. I, I, it's funny when you were telling that story, I, I remember, because I, I shadowed maybe eight or 10 shows. Wow. And I remember the first time where I was like, I think I've got this. And cool. the director was like, we were, we were on a location scout. And she was like, go ahead, ahead of me for the next scene, figure out your plan and uh, tell it to me before I, uh, you know, go through mine so I can see how you think. And it was a big dinner. It was the, the scene where all the dinner scenes take place in this show. And there's food and servers and maybe five people, but it's probably a 10 person table. And so like, that's more deceptive than you think, right? Because it's I, like, I already well, get nervous just here. Oh my God, dude, all those <laughs> angles and the eye lines, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And so I was like, well, okay, well, I remembered growing up that we had a dining room table with, I think you call them leaves that you could take out and shorten the table. So I was like, well, can we shorten this table? Can we, um, you know, has that been established in the show that that's done or will you guys be okay if I do that? That was like my question for the higher ups, the showrunner writer. Um, well, where would the food normally come from? Uh, can we, you know, minimize the meal and have some things already out and we're at the conclusion of the presentation of the food? who should sit where, and she was just nodding her head. And I was like, it was the first time I took ownership of what needs to be practically accomplished in order to make what's on the page doable. Because just because it's written a particular way doesn't mean that's A, shootable, or B, the way it has to be shot. There's an essence to it, and there are story points that are anchored within that writing that you can still accomplish in a, in a variety of ways. And it rem- I also remember being at NYU, I, I wish that there was a class where you could like take one script, same set, same actors, same equipment, and have every student film that one page scene and then begin to see like, oh shit, like that was really interesting how I, I didn't think you could tell the story like that. I feel like that would, that would tell emerging future directors more about directing in like one oh, man. day. That's a great idea. Great idea. And anything that, that you learn over four years for me, yeah. cause like you just, it's, there's no context when you're not looking at people considering the same limitations and, 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 and kind of blueprint. Yeah. I, I once had an idea for a long time ago. I still think it'd be a good idea for a little mini um, doc series, maybe. Uh, remember that you remember that show Project Greenlight where they had somebody you know, and they had all these people competing for getting to to tell the story. I was thinking, you know, it'd be interesting. This is kind of you remind me of it. It's like, what if you made what if you took like a I don't know, a 10 page scene and you said, OK, there's fifty thousand dollars to make this. And it's a 10 page scene and you hired a feature director or a, a big, a, you know, a big tentpole feature director, an indie film right. director a uh, TV series director and a film student to, you know, I said, wow. okay, you have the same resources. Now go make this, this little thing. <laughs> and it would just be yeah. kind of fun to see, or even just like you say, just make it more simple. Just take 10 different directors, five different directors and give them create, try to create the same. It's exactly what you said, because exactly what you say, it's like, you know, we, we have to honor and respect that, you know, 
there's so many choices that go into anything and that our shows really reflect ourselves how we, and it's like, we're all unique. And it's like, we're going to see things that it's always interests me that, you know, it's like, I think my experience when I'm doing something is I'm getting everything from the script. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not writing. I'm just, I'm just doing the script, but in reality, you know, how the script affects me is not how it affects someone else. It's not how it affects right. you know, this person or that person or this person, how it speaks to me. I'm filtering it through my own sensibility, my own interests, my own stories. I tell myself about who I am, right. all that stuff. And, you know, so that, so that we as directors, I think really have to keep exploring who we are and have to keep trying to deepen ourselves in a wide variety of, I mean, that's why people say, Right. You know, it's best when you go to that. You're not just be a career film student. You're not be an undergraduate film student, a graduate film student. You try to, I don't know, learn about the history of the world or literature or so that you have something to bring to the right. storytelling. Because we all right. are different. And we're all going to, as you point out, we're all going to see something differently. And we're all going to be hampered in our imaginations. That would be so interesting watching because I'm, I, I imagine that you'd watch these 10 films of the 10 people and somebody would say, God, what an imagination you have. I never thought we could expand beyond this that's written. Or I never, right. you know, it's like, yeah, it would really open us all. I, get, I guess the mini version of that is, because um, I'm producer directing my first show and like, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm looking forward to watching other directors' episodes and being like, wow, that's fucking, I like how you shot that. Like, you, you know, like, I, I feel like that, I want to get that from every every director's episode because we're we're all within the confines of the same sets or yeah. you know um uh circumstances to a degree but like to watch another eye dissect how you can enhance and 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 yeah. elevate the story like and if, I you're, think that's if your experience really cool. if your experience is is going to be like mine has been i i've i've done the job producer director three or four times i i generally don't I generally turn it down because I, I really like kind of being itinerant and moving around, but it's, there's something great about it. If you love the show and I've done it on, a right. few but my experience, I wonder if it'll be the same for you is that it's uh, unfortunately surprising uh, how few directors really surprise you when they do. It's wonderful. But a lot of directors come in and they're just bound by convention and they're just trying to do the right thing and trying to, is this right? Can I do this? And, and they, and right. they often, you know, I think, you know, a lot of directors really don't approach it as adventurously. And when you find it, because I know when, I, when you said that, I right away thought of, uh, uh, well, maybe you know him. I mean, Harry Weiner, he's at NYU. I don't know if you know him. He's a, he was a, he was, I was a producer director on a show called Party of Five. And I remember yeah, yeah. he came in and I was so fascinated by, because I had done 20 of them or however many, I'm 15, I think. And, and, you know, I had shot this set so many times and I'm always looking for new things. And I was so struck by something he did on a location, actually, that I walked, it was a library and he had to have a kind of a, I don't know, there was a student meeting at this place. And he found this odd little corner of this library we were shooting that had a beautiful mm-hmm. window and, and great views. And it was right by a staircase. And you'd never put a conference table, right? There would just never be in the library there, but right. he figured out a way to put it there. And it just, every angle was fascinating. And I was mm-hmm. so appreciative of, wow, how did he come up with that? You know, and he only came up with it, I, I think, by just walking around and just seeing, 
what would be interesting? What angle am I drawn to? I like this view. Could be, well, I don't know, but you know, yeah. you know, and to watch that, it's it's really exciting when you see it happen. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Um yeah. so from from how did you get into television from second from AD from AD uh, department? And yeah. then what was your what did you have a focus? Because you it seemed like you were doing more comedy stuff in the beginning. Uh was that was that uh, a purposeful kind of entry uh, or how did how did yeah, it well, all work I, out for you? Yeah, I'll tell you the story. Actually, I did more drama to start. What happened? Was, uh, okay. What happened was I mentioned I was an AD and I knew I didn't want to really be a first AD. So I went back to film school. I made my film, which is funny, my dramatic, my uh, showcase film that I made, my thesis film at UCLA was a dramatic comedy. It was a half hour. It was called Leon's Case. It's actually on my website, danadius.com. You can find it if you go down to it. And I had just finished being second AD on ET. So ET finished filming in February of 82 and it came out in May of 82. And I, no, ET finished in December of 81. And I filmed my show in February of 82 before ET came out in May. So I got Drew Barrymore between, you know, she was in my, she was six years old and, you know, nobody knew who she was because ET hadn't come out. So she had a small part in it. And it was a really, it was a really, it wasn't just a yuck, yuck comedy. It was, it was dramatic comedy and it touched on something that was important to me, which was, you know, I had been at Berkeley in the late sixties and early seventies and was very active politically and all that. And I was looking at my life in 10 years later and thinking, God, why, how was my life? You know, I cared about so many other, everybody I know, we used to care about social issues so much more now than we do now. We have families now and, you know, what happened to the issues? And, and so I kind of, a friend of mine had written a script that I really loved, which kind of addressed that. So it was a comedic, but pointed look at, at, you know, what happens to our values. So I made this film and it won a bunch of film festivals and it got me an agent and uh, an agent who was known at that time. And they're still around the Gersh agency, but at that time they were more known for finding good young directors who, you know, could, could, you know, producers could take a chance on. So Dino De Laurentiis took a chance on me, I think because I was with that agency and he liked my film. And I got to, my first job was a feature film, which was Stephen King's Silver Bullet. So I did that in 84, 85. And that came out and I'm not really a horror buff. You know, I liked the stories and I was really drawn to the, it was kind of a, to me, I loved it for being a kid's adventure, but Dino wanted it to be a hard R. So it was kind of a schizophrenic experience. I kept trying to make it a kid's adventure with a crazy fun uncle, Gary Busey. And, and uh, Dino kept wanting, no, we have to reshoot that scene with more gore because he wanted a hard R. So, you know, it still has a kind of cult following, which is kind of fun. But uh, I really wanted to get into features, keep going into features. And I, because I was had done a horror film that was really wasn't my, you know, I said, I don't want to do more horror films, which I could have done. I was offered some more of those. Right. But I said, no, no, I want my next film to really reflect my sensibility. And, you know, so I was so particular about stuff and I didn't generate stuff. So as I got a few development deals and whatever, but as that was happening, a few TV shows came my way and I really didn't take it very seriously. TV is TV, you know, but maybe I'll get to have some practice directing. So I started working, I did Miami Vice, third season of Vice, which I write about, was really a tough experience for me. And I learned a lot from, from failure, actually. I mean, the show turned right. out, but I had a lot of 
missteps and, and uh, a lot of my naivete really cost me in a lot of situations. But I started, uh, I started doing uh, episodic while I was still trying to you know, keep my hand in features and had a few development deals. It was the typical development hell, things got developed and never get made and all that. Right. And I started really, where I really cut my teeth on episodic was uh, on Beverly Hills 90210 in, the, mm. in 1990. And, and the first, first three or four seasons of that, I directed like 20 of them. And uh, it was fun because, believe it or not, that was the cutting edge show of the day. And uh, oh, yeah. so it was real. And it was also fun because it was like a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, it was like right. when I did my first show, which was the sixth episode of the first season, it, no one knew if it was even going to air because they thought the show was so terrible. And, you know, but then it takes off. So that was that was really fun. And I did. And I that's when I moved into more, you know, drama, some David Kelly things, The Practice, Ally McBeal, things like that. Um, and uh, I did do a comedy I loved, which was Northern Exposure, which was a great show. I wish people could access it somehow. It was just a great, great show. And anyway, I recommend that. Um, it's it's not available on any of the. Uh, you know, I, it hasn't platforms. been for a long time. It, it's got to be. It, it's so good. It starred Rob Morrow and a lot of you know yeah. really fine actors, and just was just a brilliant show. I write about it a little bit in my book. Um, but I wound up, uh, and I really hadn't done comedy. And I, I one of my first, I had, had a sprinkling of a few things, and like as you point out, you know, it's rare that people go back and forth because you get pigeonholed. People in this job want to hire you for something they've seen you having done exactly the same before. That they okay, right. we know. Much like the horror pit horror projects that were being pitched to you, right? right? Exactly. Like you've done that. Let's exactly. Yeah. And like actors face who have a lot of talent, but you know, get stuck having been brilliant as a serial killer, and then oh, we right. got to get that wacky, crazy, screwed up guy. You know, it's like they said, no, no, no. I'm a I'm an actor. You know, it's right. hard to get your shot at that. Um, even though shows like Northern Exposure were hilarious, but because it was hour long and the Emmys considered a drama because it was hour long. But then I was around during this, you know, golden age of television that just kind of sprang up because I, 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 I one of the things on Northern Exposure is I got to know David Chase. So mm-hmm. in the late night, in the mid to latest nineties, I did a, an episode of Northern, which uh, he was, he became, he had, he, he didn't create the show, Josh Brand and, and John Falsey created the show, but on the one of the last seasons, David Chase became the showrunner. I did a show that I think turned out well and he really liked. So he called me up and said, would you do, uh, I just got a show picked up at HBO. I did the pilot, would you do the next episode? And I said, well, I'd love to see it. And blew me away, it was Sopranos, right? And right. so I got to do that, but unfortunately, I, not unfortunately, but in a certain way it was, I had just taken my first producer directing job on Party of Five, signed up for two years. I was supposed to start in July and and here was Sopranos offered to me. And I had to, I got permission from Party of Five to let me just do one episode and then I'll be with you for two years. So I found right. Nirvana, Nirvana, and it's like I couldn't be with it. I had to go. <laughs> I was in, in hot for a couple of years. I got back to do a couple of more episodes later, but that was really a huge start for me. And but still, I mean. I consider Sopranos so in so many ways a comedy, but that wasn't right. a comedy either. What really turned right. it for me in terms of comedy was, uh, and I've been doing this for so long that it's already a long time ago. So I've done a lot of comedy too. But 
um, when was it? In after 2000s, uh, Entourage came along. And yeah. Entourage, the guys, Doug Allen, who created it, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Steve Levinson also, they, you know, they were huge fans of, uh, Doug created it, not Steve, but uh, they were huge fans of Sopranos, right? And they, and they knew that they, the, the comedy they wanted for Entourage, they wanted it to be reality-based. They didn't right. want, you know, and they said, and they also recognized the humor in The Sopranos, right? So they said, they hired me to do that. And I did a, you know, a ton of those and I got um, nominated for Emmys for it. And, you know, so that established my bona fides as a comedy director. And then I went, right. and then I found my way to many others, but the one I, I loved the most is the one you also did. It's always sunny. And they, those guys I met when they were just starting out and uh, they approached me. I don't know if it was because of entourage or maybe it was, I don't know, but I remember first meeting, uh, you know, Rob and Glenn and Charlie, and they had just done this pilot that was just fucking brilliant. You know, they made a $250 pilot of themselves, you know, and actually the first, the pilot was they played actors out of work, which is what they were. And they said, you know, let's right. try to make our own show. And they made a hilarious, you know, half hour of, you know, three out of work actors. I still, I just wish it could be seen. It probably, I, I hope they can, it was so funny because they decided <laughs> the story was they were, three actors out of work, but they all, they all wanted to get laid. And they saw, you know, the way we get laid is if we say we're making a picture and we can audition women for the part. And Charlie, Charlie plays the fake director, but he gets so uh -huh. identified with the role that he becomes this auteur, you know, it's like, it's very funny. And, uh, but anyway, John Landgraf picked it up. They wanted to make it. And, and I remember meeting with them and I was hired to do, the, they were going to do six episodes the first season and they hired somebody for they made an executive producer and hired someone to do the first three. And then I was going to do the block of the second three, which I did. And, uh, you know, a story I relate in my book in the chapter on the language of camera is that, you know, as I was prepping my block of three, I saw the first block being shot and I was so disappointed in the way it was being shot because they, uh, they were shooting it conventionally namely they'd right. set up the cameras. Okay. We're doing one direction. Okay. We got that. Now let's turn around and do everything. You got to match exactly. And all that. And I said, that's not what this style is. These guys right. are free form. So I, and it's not what they did in their pilot, which is so great. And it's such a lesson too, that, you know, when you're starting out, sometimes it's so great not knowing the rules, you know, mm -hmm. you just do what feels right. So they had a couple of cameras shooting simultaneously. They weren't worried about good lighting and all that. And they had this great, you know, spontaneous, zany kind of energy. So I went to the DP on, uh, uh, so I told Rob and Charlie and Glenn, I said, I'd really like to shake it up when I get to R3, because I'd like to figure out a way to shoot simultaneous cross coverage. So you guys, right. you're always covered. And you, I should say to your viewers who already probably, most of them I'm sure know this already, but that shoot way of shooting one direction and turning around is the way almost every show shoots. But these guys would really benefit from, just having everything covered at once so that whatever impulse arises, it's covered. And not only that, even when you're maybe repeating the same lines or doing the same things, the way these guys humor work, that the subtlest of changes, even if it's just a look like, huh, are you? <laughs> or something right. weird, it's gonna elicit something unique and responsive from the other one. So we wanted always to have that covered. So we did that and it was great. And then the next season I became producer and directed, uh, 
uh, nine of the 10, I actually directed all 10, but I needed to take my name off the first for personal reasons that had nothing to do with the show. But I, and I was, uh, and I, so I had directed like, I don't know, 13 episodes or 12 of them. And, and I was ready to move on because I, for a couple of reasons, one, these guys didn't need me. They were just off on their own. And I frankly, right. wanted to, you know, move on to other things, but I was delighted right. to come back to do their hundredth episode, but that got me started in comedy. And since then I've, you know, been able to go back and forth, but I, you know, it's most of my work is, you know, I did Sopranos, Deadwood, Six Feet Under, um, big love uh, entourage, but you know a lot of dramatic stuff. More recently, Homeland and The Americans. I got back to comedy really in a really enjoyable way doing The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I see a few seasons. Okay. That. So that Great was, show. Yeah. So th- what's what's interesting about this journey is it's there was the the feature film world as an AD, then drama in uh, on TV. Then the golden age kind of comes and this premium cable uh, uh, kind of arises. Was there something that your feature filmmaking experience, uh, did it find a better home in the, in the premium cable? You know, as far as like your approach um, that maybe it didn't work as well on, t- on kind of, you know, broadcast TV? Like, how did you find your, your variety of experience empowered your process in 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 premium cable yeah you're you're absolutely right that there's a much closer connection between feature directing and premium cable than there is to network tv i mean i've been um you know there are some good shows on network tv still but i i really tend to shy away from them because i don't tend to shy away from the good shows i just tend to shy away from network tv because you know it's it's partly just because of the business model. They have to appeal to the kind of, the broad, they have to throw out the biggest net, which unfortunately translates often to appealing to the lowest common denominator. You lose, right. you know, you lose nuance, you lose, you know, subtlety, you lose, um, it, it's gotta be very clear what's happening. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? And to me, that's not life. You know, right. life is, right. I was a joy directing The Wire or directing, you know, uh, homeland or directing uh, the americans where you have nuance where it's not so clear that everybody is a complex real soul and that uh you know you can you can find yourself in almost all of the characters you know and you can right. you, know, you can start actually opening up to your own uh your own flaws maybe as care instead of just identifying with a heroic guy who's going to appeal to some story you might have within you of wanting vengeance and wanting to see payback and get, you know it's like it's just that, you know, it, 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 I guess the business model is that when you have these subscriber-based uh, uh, cable outlets, uh, premium cable channels, they need less of an audience. They just, the people who are right. drawn to them, it's like they're already paying their, their way and you can appeal to them. So, and, and also you're freed from the burden of the kind of five commercial breaks where you have to have five, you know, you know, outs where it's like a cliffhanger. Oh my God, we got and to bring them back after you know the commercial and all that. Right. And there also seems to be more respect for the director. I find in in those things more more willingness to let the director kind of uh, bring their own unique vision to it. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I love in the beginning of your book. I, I don't. I have it dog eared, but I don't have the book in front of me. But you talk about like 
as a director, don't expect anyone to come up and say, great job, <laughs> you know, uh, while you're managing all of these kind of uh, different masters and incoming fastballs and, you know, a dam needs a plug with a finger and all this stuff. Um, and it's just true to the mindset that you have to just make it about the work and the story. Uh, I was going to ask you, what is the difference that you've seen in going from film to video? Film to video. You mean uh, you mean digital? Going from uh, film okay. to so, video? yeah, film yeah. to digital. Yeah. Um, well, I frankly, I frankly, frankly, really like it. Um, you know, I I know I have some friends who are purists about the aesthetics of it. Some people feel really strongly that film is so beautiful, and yeah, I can I feel the same way. Film can be. I don't know if digital ever, you know, can really get certain qualities film has. But I got to confess that to me, it's it's mostly close enough because I'm my 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 personal connection to it is is really story, and you know, so that it it offers to me so much more flexibility in terms of ease of production, in terms of not having to stop every 10 minutes to stop and reload the camera and all that. I also like the, I guess I was gonna say, I also like the uh, uh, greater security that what you're capturing is gonna be what you're gonna see finally, and you're not gonna, the film's not gonna get destroyed in the lab and all that. I can also see there's a kind of preciousness that gets, uh, created when something is so ephemeral as film oh my god is it you know there's certain and there's and i also see also i have to admit you know there's certain advantages which i'm i'm happy to do without frankly and like when you get into editing i used to you know a lot of my work in the early you know in the in the 90s and you know 80s and 90s was like on like cutting on film shot in film and then you'd edit on film and it's and so many people nowadays probably have no idea what that even involves, but you're working on a, you know, you have to cut each, okay, wait, we got this piece of film, we got to join it, wait, what frame is it going to be? And and then the right. print can get so chewed up by changing frame to frame, it's like it doesn't even go through the projector. And if you want right. to dissolve, you got to say, okay, let's guess, uh, let me get a three second dissolve. And then you send it to the lab and you pay for it <laughs> two days and it comes back. And then you look at it and you right. say, uh, it's good i wish it had gone a half a second more you know right. and we do it again and all that stuff and, and there's famous stories too a lot of editors it's fun it's wonderful you know how there would be editors who old-time editors that were so great they'd say let's see how long it dissolves should it be and they'd pull the film out of the movie all or the camera and they just say i think it's about that long you know and they just feel uh-huh. and they just, you know and there's something great about that but i love not having to worry about that i love having versions let's just try another version here let's just try and take take out one more frame let's let's save that version let me just try another don't change that cut i want to try another version of the scene let's do i just love that and uh right. i do think it can contribute i think there's a downside to it can, can, can contribute to a certain kind of carelessness you know people talk mm-hmm. about that in terms of like writing you know it's like boy when i went through college and was writing all my papers it was on a you know a typewriter and it was like right. you know when you had a uh, 10 page paper to turn in and you wanted to make a change it's like oh god i got to retype this whole sheet now or it's like so you'd be more careful in how right. you think about how you're writing each thing instead of just kind of right. i'll go back and now change right. it. okay i'll take that out and so it leads to 
I do think there's a sacrifice. It leads to a certain more disciplined kind of thinking when you have these kind of right. relations. But I, uh, I'm quite happy to, to have the flexibility. Yeah, I, I don't want to be the get off my lawn guy, but you know, <laughs> I, I I do feel like because I, I I came up editing on the steam back and doing that, and I and as I've worked with so many different editors or just different department heads, it's like you would think about that paper edit so long to make sure like your your philosophical approach to cutting this work print <laughs> is going to be it's not an exploration it's a it's an implementation you know <laughs> and and i think that um sometimes i'm like working with folks i'm like wait i know we can let, let's just like talk about it for a second and like slow down instead of like oh no no like i can command z undo uh everything is just kind of like let's let's get this let's pull back the the pinball machine first and kind of load it up and then let it go um but i i, I don't know maybe i am getting older no uh, but it's really but you know it's it's really true i mean we got to really be on our game and i think i have the inner discipline and i sense you certainly do too that you know to care enough when i'm doing something to really not want to settle for something i want it to be just how i want it and I'll stick with it. But, you know, sometimes that can get attacked, that mentality when things are so easy to make changes. Eh, let's try it. Okay, let's try it. Okay. And it can right. lead to a kind of vagueness of thinking. And there's something I think really important to sustain, even with the new technology, which is, I don't know any other way to put it, except I'm thinking of like kind of a, a fierce commitment to really holding your standards up, really being, you know, uh, careful and focused in, in everything you're doing. And that really, that's a, that's a mental, you know, I have a chapter in my book called Inner States. And I talk about, you know, something that people don't often talk about in directing is the wide variety of emotions and, and feelings and inner states and, and that you go through when you're, when you're directing. Yeah. And it's like, you know, if you don't get, have a way to kind of find that place within yourself where you can really be focused and open and attentive and not distracted, you know, you can't be that 100, 100%, you can't be that way 100% of the time. And I acknowledge that in the book, but you, you gotta really hold story first and foremost, what story are we telling? What, what is getting communicated by this, you know? And there's so many pressures like, you know, you wanna be, I don't know, some of us wanna be liked by the cast we're working with, you know, you know it's like, you know, and that's, that's another challenge like I write about too, it's like, you know, directing actors is really an interesting exercise in, in really having to not abdicate your role, even if it means kind of maybe pissing off somebody or risking right. antagonism, uh, you know? And it's like, you know, it's not that we invite that or we want that, but if you're not accepting, like you had said earlier, taking responsibility for being the storyteller, you know, then you're, you know, and what matters is really what's going to come through on this. It's our one chance to tell this right. story with these actors and this script in this moment. It's our one chance. You know, when the scene's done, it's over. And, right. uh, you know, if you don't really hold the, the, the intention to make this as best as it could be, and by best, I mean, does it really feel to me like a story worth telling? Do I care about this? I mean, that's something I really feel that 
you know, if I can't find a way to care about the story I'm doing, then I can't really make anybody else care about it. And that's a challenge. Right. You know, I mean, came up doing Beverly Hills 90210, which I think was a really good show for its time. But, you know, I got to put myself in that state of what it was like to be 16 and have right. something not go the way I want or be afraid. It's like to really get there. It's like to really care about it, to really say there was something true here. I mean, there's something true in human experience about this time of life. And, you know, yeah, I could just have them say the lines and, you know, but, you know, and, and it extends to everything I do. And it's, it's, uh, it's sometimes painful and challenging to care too much, you know, but you gotta, and a lot of times people look at you like, you're crazy. What are you talking about? They said the lines, it was all right, you know? Yeah, but it wasn't really deep enough and real enough. You know, I didn't care about it. I didn't care about it. How do I feel about this? That's again, the question, Ah, just kind of went by. And this is too, yeah. too great of an opportunity we have to tell a story that, that millions of people probably are going to watch. You know, it's right. a responsibility. And we have a chance to affect people, to show them something right. true, you know, what we feel is true. Right. I love that. I, I think so. We're, I'm at the turning the corner stage. And I think everybody should just buy the book, read the book, dog ear the book. Because can, the, you tell them, can you tell them what the book is? Yeah, yeah, I'll, it'll be in the in the opening as oh, well. Good, but it's good, directing good. directing great television by Dan Adius, uh, and the Inside TV's new Golden Age. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was wondering what would be like, what would potentially get the most mileage for an emerging filmmaker from from you with your experience. Um, and so I guess I've got this question, and I hope it's not putting you on the spot. What would you say is your guiding principle for prep and then for production and then for post? So uh, somebody listening can just kind of know how someone who's really talented and great at this job thinks about the job and the decisions that have to uh that come in each of those three stages? Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question and I'm happy to try to answer it. Um, first, let me give a preface to what I hope people will get, what I have to offer to people through my book, but also just in what I, what I believe. And before I address the specifics of prep, shooting and post, what I'm hoping people will get from the book is, uh, among other things, and there are a lot of stories and there are a lot of experiences that I've had that I'm trying to bring people into my thought process as I was doing it and all that. If there's any message, it's like, you know, the only thing we have as directors is ourselves. And, and the only thing, the only resource that's really meaningful that's going to distinguish us is how we, you know, what we can, what we care about, how we understand some, what deeper things open up for us in a truthful way. But that involves really getting to know your heart and who you are. You have to really open up to, again, how do I feel about this? And it's so, you know, there's so many things in our society, certainly I feel them, you know, uh, impediments to feeling, you know, it's like we want to, which is why I love actors, frankly, and why, you know, it's like we're asking them to open up to any feeling that we we probably don't want to have ourselves. We'd like to watch them have it to see what it's like, you know, right. so we can safely, you know, imaginatively put ourselves in their position, but still be able to retreat to our own safe personas. So really what I love about directing for me personally is that it's, it opens me up to learn about who I am and to deepen myself. And that's really what I hope any of us are doing here 
you know, we all have egos and we all want, yeah, we all want the glitz and the success and the prestige of having done a cool show and all that, but that's really not ultimately terribly important. What's more important for me is, and I can say that, I guess, because it's nice that I've had some success, so I've gotten some of those things. So maybe it's easier for me to say, yeah, what's really important is to, but, you know, it's true at the end of the day, you know, how richly we live, how, how much we accept ourselves, how much we are willing to see into life and see who we are really, who all of us really are. That's really the gift of it. Okay, off the soapbox. Now, in prep, uh, it took me a while. And, I, and in my second chapter, I call it the school of hard knocks. And I had a really tough couple of experiences on my first job, Miami. That was, my, was actually my second or third, but Miami Vice. And then I had another one on Beauty and the Beast where I really had to discover what I did on Miami Vice was I just kind of wanted, felt I had to present myself as more expert than I really was. I was very new to the experience and I couldn't even admit to myself what I didn't know and how creativity really involves curiosity and being willing not to know. You've gotta be willing not to know so that you can then, okay, I don't know that. Okay, what's the, okay, what's the solution? What, how can I get knowledge? And it's like you go through a process, like we were talking earlier about being willing to face the blank page. It's like, okay, well, what's the story? Was it about that? Well, that's a bad joke. No, but you know, that's interesting. It points me. That's, you know, so you go through this process. <clears throat> and in prep, what I learned in early, early on in one of my early jobs, and I write about it on the, when, my, when I talk about what happened on Beauty and the Beast, <clears throat> I learned that in prep, I really have to deepen myself as the storyteller. I really have to immerse in the story so I can make it mine. So I have to do, even before prep, if I know I'm doing a, going to do a show, I, I try to you know, watch as many of them as I can to really, let me get some water one sec, to really understand the sensibility of the show because it's gonna affect how I see things and learn say the visual language of the show because, and that's an exciting thing for me because I'm, I'm drawn to shows that have a different way of seeing maybe than I do because I wanna learn how to see in that with those lenses, you know? So that I think of it as learning the language of the show so that I can not mimic it, but learn to speak it in my voice. You know, that's right. to me a really key, fine distinction to make. It's like, yeah, you're coming on to a show and they frame a lot like this. And oh, yeah, well, okay, I'll just do that. But, you know, each image evokes a feeling, evokes a subjective state. So becoming so familiar with how, how it works enables me to kind of, okay, I'm going to see things this way. And then I have to see how does it make me feel each image. And then you can start utilizing the ways it communicates in the way you want to communicate. So I'll immerse myself in the sensibility of the show. I'll try to, first of all, find my connection to the script. I'll read the script a lot. Uh, I'll first try to read it without any uh, need to know exactly how I'm going to do it before. And that, that required some overcoming some anxieties of myself, you know, which I still have, you know, it's like, God, I don't know how to do this. I mean, you know, it's like, don't try to uh, put those aside. We, let the material wash over you. Say, what interested me? What 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 felt to me like the story here? And and then what? And then you start to go deeper, and you make your own connection to it. As soon as I can, I try to talk to the showrunner or writer about okay, <clears throat> what's what's the, what are the deeper levels of the story here? What are you working at here? What are you what are you trying to communicate? You know, other than right. what happens, what's the meaning of what happens in terms of 
your interest and in the show's interest. You know, the tone meeting often happens later in the prep period. I always ask for it as early as I can because I think it's going to inform all of my creative decisions. It's like, oh, right. oh yes, you know, or I'll have my own point of view and I'll want to exchange. I want to share with the writer. I said, that's interesting. You're after this, you know, what really intrigued me about the story you wrote was this other element. I was really thought this relationship was really interesting. How And you start exchanging and often there can be a, you know, symbiosis and a kind of collaborative creativity. Right. But my goal in prep is to emerge with an understanding of the story I'm telling in a way that I can make it my story. Now, we all know in episodic series, one of the big differences with that and feature directing is it's the showrunner's vision you're serving. You're not, you're not there to be the auteur. You're there to serve the vision of the story. And, but you can't, but you have to at the same time, and it's almost paradoxical, you have to take responsibility for it. You have to make it yours. So what I enjoy is bringing myself to it, understanding what it is, understanding what the show's concerns are, but then connecting to it in a way that, okay, I'm going to be with this flow. I'm going to enter this river, but I'm bringing myself to it. So what do I care about here? I see what they care about and I've got to honor that, you know, but I've got to make it mine. So I want to emerge from prep knowing as much as I can about the nuance of every scene, about what's going on so that I can be the authority on set when I step on and have to take command. And when I right. say command, I think that's, you know, we are leaders as directors and people who shy away from that are not effective directors. Now, when I say take command, that doesn't mean being commanding. It doesn't mean being an asshole. It doesn't mean being a martinet. It just means having command. It means being, right. be, knowing the story you're telling and taking responsibility for it, you know? And uh, so that's my main job in prep. There are a lot of technical things you can read other books about. There's all the meetings that happen and all that. But the fundamental thing is, you know, answer as many of the questions, define what the story is. That's, that's kind of another way of thinking about it. You know, a lot of directors I talk to, I mean, or as a producer director, they don't, they're not sensitive to that. They think, oh yeah, the story, yeah, it's the script. The script is a fleshless blueprint. You know, you can't just film the script. That would be pictures of words on a page. That would be filming. Right. The you have to interpret it. You have to bring right. life to it. And therefore you have to make it yours and define what are the deeper levels the story is working at. What's it really about? You know, why do I care about this love story more than another? Well, it's because the directors and actors and writers have done a better job of defining who the actors are, who the, who the man is, who the woman is, or the man and the man, or the woman and the woman, but they're defining who they are and, and then seeing, and so what's at issue? And what's the particular need getting addressed? And what's the need to, you know, you, you make it a deeper, as deep a story as you can. And that doesn't mean, I mean, a comedy can be deep too. I don't mean like, right. I mean, complex, like Stella Adler. What are the bigger concerns, you know? Right. So that's to me prep. And then shooting, even though I've said you answer as many questions as you can in prep, you also want to, I think only by being as prepared as that, can you really be as creative and open to new things on set? If you don't come with a grounded idea of what story you're telling, then you're just floundering. Yeah, we could do that. Okay. <laughs> well, no, it's like, if I know what the story is, then I can be so much more open and, and have an idea for how I want to do it and have an idea for staging, which I, I prefer not to impose on actors, but I have it in mind. And I'm generally trying to kind of help them find it on their own, but sometimes they'll find something that 
because I'm prepped and I know the story, I can recognize as better than my idea. Oh my God, that really, you know. But again, it only comes from your work in prep. So I, you know, I'm open to that kind of thing. And it enables me better to prioritize in shooting. Like when you get in those times where you, you know, lost time and you have to make up here. Well, because I know the gist of the importance of the scene, I can, it's easier to pare down. Okay, you know, I don't need that other thing. It would have been nice, but the real story, I got to get this moment. I got to get to have this happen. Or maybe I can do it in a one that I didn't, and I, I preferred this other thing. But if I stage the one in a way that gets me that key moment, that's all I, you know. So, so shooting is just, a, you know, prioritizing as you go uh, try, and having to be a leader, having to be, you know, make it as good an experience for everybody as you can, honor your collaborators, let them know you appreciate their input. But also there are times when you just have to, you know, do it the way you want it because of time. Uh, right. But stay as open as you can to new things, to accidents, to new insights, to something a contributor may, a collaborator may suggest. Try to be as open as you can, but also you have to keep that clock in mind too. So it's a, you know, as I say, it seems like an impossible job. How do we do it, Pete? I don't know. But anyway, uh, that's shooting. And then, and then post, post to me always seems so enjoyable because I've worked so hard and I've gotten to the point and, and I'm freed from a certain level of having to make it, you know, shoot it better or figure it's like, no, it's already shot. So it's given. It's now what's done is done. Now, how can I really make, again, you ask all the same questions. I do all the same questions. It's like, how is this moment working? How might it be better? If we double cut back and forth before the answer with that, that might really create more gravity to the answer. Or can I just add a little space before she answers? It's like, it might make it right. land a little deeper, a more deep experience. So, or, you know, God, it's just dragging. Let's just try upcutting everything, which is, oh, wow, it's coming alive now. You know, so it's, again, it's, again, asking how it feels, collaborating. Right. With uh, but again, not abdicating, still being, you know, for, for our cut anyway, the director's cut, I want it to represent how I think the story best works. And then you got to right. say goodbye. And then you got to let it go because you know the producers are going to do with it what they want. And you can just hope, all you can do is hope that they'll agree with your choices or find ways to make them better. So there, there's a few thoughts. That, that's amazing. So here are the final two uh, questions. Um, the first one is with your, um, and all my questions seem to have cascade down, but uh, with your amazing journey, um, if we were to make a movie, TV show, limited series about Dan Adius, um, who would play you? What genre would it be in? And, and who would direct it? Oh, well, I would hope it would be Charlie Day in a zany comedy. <laughs> and, uh, God, who would direct it? Uh, <laughs> could I get Peter Weir to direct Charlie Day playing Dan Adius? I'd go for that. That would be fun. I love it. I love it. <laughs> coming, coming this summer. Um, and then the last one is uh, I ask everyone uh, just what three characteristics do you think someone needs to have at their disposal to make it in this industry? Wow. Well, I don't want to be flip here and just talk off the top of my head. Let me think about that. Well, 
they have to have drive. And I would hope it's drive to contribute something meaningful. That might start as drive to succeed, but if it's just drive to succeed without drive to contribute either to your own experience or the experience of others, you're gonna, it's gonna end up with, you know, a lot of things that we see getting made that don't need to get made. Uh, so that's one. Um, courage. It takes courage. It takes courage to deal with rejection. It takes courage to put yourself forward uh, despite danger, to danger of rejection, uh, danger of hurt, uh, you know, uh, and that, that's kind of close to commitment, I guess. Um, so drive, courage, um, and curiosity. I think mm -hmm. that's important too. Curiosity, just stay open to what, what is emerging in your own field of interest or what you see in life that, you know, willing not to know, willing to be curious about what you don't know, um, willing to be open. So I don't know, that's off the top of my head. I didn't want to just be off the top of my head, but that's yeah. all I can do right now. <laughs> but you know what? It, it's so it's so drive courage and curiosity. And, you know, I, I used to do a lot of documentaries and um, that was kind of my bread and butter um, before TV. And it, I always say that the last question would be like, is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to tell me? And 90% of the sound bites would always come from that last question. And there's something about, uh, I don't know, it's like that last take, right? Like, go for it. Uh, I think your answer is perfect. And it, and it probably reflects the things that are really, you're making critical choices, much like, you know, what's the coverage? Like, what's the takeaway here? And I think drive, courage, and curiosity is indeed uh, what you need. So I appreciate it. Thank you, Pete. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, you know, I, I, I thank you. Likewise. Thank you, Dan. This has been awesome. Uh, the book is Directing Great Television, Inside TV's New Golden Age, written by Dan Adius. I'll even say the book is directed by Dan Adius. <laughs> <laughs> and um, appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks thank so much. You. Thank you. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. All right, folks, that was Mr. Dan Adius. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, I know I did. I will be back next week with episode 32, which will be featuring Gita Gandabir. She is the executive producer and director of HBO's Black and Missing, uh, editor of many documentaries and films, uh, and just an all-around all awesome person I um, want to thank our producer, Tristan Nash, for making that happen, connecting that uh, interview together for us. 
And um, as always, y'all, stay safe, spread love, and keep creating. Peace.